Good morning. What a privilege it is for me to be here with you this morning to share from God's Word. Um, my name is Stephen Waldvogel, as Brian mentioned, and I serve as one of the elders here at Randall. I have a wonderful, beautiful wife, Catherine, and five amazing kids, which um, I'm all glad that they're all here with us today. Um, as Brian mentioned, today we're fulfilling or finishing a sermon series called The Fulfilled Christmas. And all of this has been focused on the second chapter of Matthew. And we've been considering several Old Testament prophecies that Christ has fulfilled, giving credibility to the fact that he indeed was the Messiah. Matthew was writing to the Jewish people, the diaspora, who were scattered across the known world at that time. And one of his main emphasis was to demonstrate to them that the Messiah, Jesus, the anointed one, in the line of King David, was in fact this Jesus of Nazareth. And he was come to save the world and bring peace to his people. Today, the prophecy in the scripture that we read is the final prophecy of the Christmas story, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Now, this prophecy is different than each of the other prophecies we've considered in the last few weeks, in that there is no specific Old Testament reference that we can tie it back to. There's no explicit statement in the Old Testament that links this scripture to what Matthew says. In fact, we don't find Nazareth mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. So what is Matthew trying to do here? What is Matthew getting at? I hope that we can explore that and discover that better today. Now, one thing that some might do initially when they um, realize that there is no specific prophecy is they may want to use this to discredit what Matthew is doing or call into question the Bible itself. Now, I think this is way too simplistic, and it just demonstrates a lack of understanding of biblical prophecy and the Word of God. However, admittedly, the fact that there is no clear Old Testament reference that this prophecy speaks to makes it a little more difficult for us here. But haven't you found that when there's a difficulty in our initial understanding, when we dig into God's word and we search the scriptures, so often he'll reveal a truth to us that maybe we wouldn't have seen otherwise a deeper truth that maybe changes our worldview. And what I hope today gives you hope, gives me hope in every area of our life. You can change the slide now. <laughs> maybe. Well, before we jump into the story, I want to step back and look at the prophecies 
that Matthew has portrayed in, in chapter 2 here. Okay? There are actually five prophecies in the Christian, Christmas story. We've only looked at four because we're only looking at chapter 2. We have to go back to chapter 1 to find the first prophecy. And I have them listed here. The first prophecy, which is drawn from Isaiah 7, is that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, and they would call his name Emmanuel. The second prophecy from Micah 5 was that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The third from Hosea was that God would call his son out of Egypt. The fourth from Jeremiah, that there would be weeping and lamentation in Ramah. And the fifth prophecy, which as we've just covered, has no specific Old Testament reference, is that Christ would be called a Nazarene. Now, I'm going to take a, just a bit of liberty here. If you look at these five properties, I think we might see a pattern, or at least something that is significant for us not to miss. So the first prophecy does two things. One, it tells us that God will become man. God will become human. And his name will be Emmanuel, meaning he will dwell with us. He will be God with us. So th remember this. He will become a human and he will be with us. The second, the third, the fourth prophecies all have great significance as well, but they all mention a specific place. And how often throughout the Bible, the place itself has some significance that we can dig into and discover. And each of these places is woven into the birth story of Christ. And then when we come to the fifth prophecy, we find a place again, right? The place is Nazareth. Nazareth. But I would say that this prophecy is actually the embodiment of the first. Jesus is a man. Jesus is a Nazarene. He becomes human. And he is God with us. And you'll see throughout Jesus' life how he dwelt with us when he was here on earth, but how he continues to dwell with us. In fact, I think Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise to us of Emmanuel. Because he was a man, he can share in our burdens and understand our temptations. He made a way for all people to have direct access to God. And I hope that through this message this morning, Jesus Christ will be made real to you, that he is approachable. He's available to everyone, even you. It doesn't matter if you're rich, you're poor, you're old, you're young. It doesn't matter what your past is. Christ, as a Nazarene, identifies with you. He can feel your pain, embrace you and your struggle. And this morning, he welcomes you into a personal relationship with him. If you just look to him as your savior. I want to open with prayer. Let's, let's bow our heads once again. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would guide 
our thoughts here, that you'd open our eyes, that you'd give us ears to hear and tender hearts to receive your word. We can do nothing without you, and so we learn and, and yearn to learn about you today. In your name, amen. So let's take a moment to review the text, and in particular, the story. So the, the text begins initially with Joseph having a dream where God or the angel tells him to return to Israel. Those um, that sought the child's life had died, and now it was time to go back home. Here, um, it seems, if you read in between the lines, it seems like Joseph and Mary and Christ may have been heading back to Bethlehem, which is close to Jerusalem in the region of Judea. Okay? We also read that Archelaus was ruling over that part of Israel at that time. Now, Archelaus was Herod's son, and he had received a part of the kingdom after Herod had died. Archelaus, similar to his dad, cruel, paranoid, and this scared Joseph. And so now we see a second dream which directs them away from Judea to the region of Galilee. And ultimately, they settle in Nazarene. Now, it's interesting because I suppose, I'm not sure, I suppose that maybe Joseph and Mary thought going back to Bethlehem rather than Nazareth, their hometown, might have been a bit of a new start, a new life. Because if you think back to Nazareth, that's where Mary had become pregnant out of wedlock. Probably going back to Nazareth would have been hard for them. They would have been shamed and scorned. Their family would have had a bad reputation. Jesus, maybe he would have been bullied at school. It might have been difficult for him to grow up there. Maybe it would have been difficult for Joseph to find meaningful work because of their reputation. But yet, ultimately, God chose to send them back to Nazareth. So now we come to our prophecy today. Jesus will be called a Nazarene. This is difficult because we don't, as we said, we don't see any specific reference in the Bible. Now, scholars, ever since the early church, have been, have been exploring what the Holy Spirit was trying to teach us by prompting Matthew to write these words. And several different interpretations have been posited. Now, I think there are two which are especially compelling and most consistent with the broader scope of Scripture. And I'm going to explore them a little bit with you this morning. I think these two do contain some nuggets of truth that, at least in part, is the message that God wants us to hear in this Scripture. So the first interpretation refers to a branch. Now, maybe some of you have heard this before. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. So I've, you know, uh, read other scholars and learned this myself. But one of the Hebrew words for branch is netzer. 
Now, this word is very similar to the Hebrew word for Nazareth. They sound alike and they're spelled similarly. Most scholars believe that Matthew's play on Hebrew words here is pointing us back to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and specifically um, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 33 through eleven two, which I'll read for you now. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This imagery of a branch, which signifies the promise of a Messiah, it brought hope to the Jewish people for many hundreds of years. Two other prophets, at least, Jeremiah and Zechariah, use this imagery in their prophecies, but they use different Hebrew words to do so. However, this imagery would have been very familiar to the Jewish people. This word picture that Israel cut down like a tree remaining only as a stump with new life springing forth as a little tiny tender shoot or tender branch coming out. This was a, a very familiar picture for the people at that time. Now, if we take another step back and look at the book of Isaiah itself. It's one of the most amazing and hopeful books in the entire Bible. The message of Isaiah is actually summed up in the prophet's name. The prophet's name means Yahweh is salvation. Right there, that's the message of the book. It's a long book. It's made up of a series of different compositions. And if you read through it, you'll see it jumps back and forth between oracles of destruction and judgment and oracles of salvation. And it, it might be difficult for a casual reader to understand the meaning. But if we look closely, you can see God's merciful hand guiding his plan to save all the nations of the earth through a Messiah and despite the people's sin and rebellion, God promises the Jewish people and ultimately all nations that an heir of David would take the throne and through the Jewish people, he would bring light to all the world. And that's a hope we all have this morning. Now, when Isaiah was writing this, Judah the southern kingdom, had largely turned against God, adopting the world's practices and their pursuits. Judah's idol worship and other sin would lead to severe judgment, which included the exile. Many of Isaiah's prophecies seem to indicate that Israel would be destroyed, and there seems to be an inconsistency 
between God's promises all the way back to Abraham that he would make him a nation of many people like the stars and many kings would come from his line. And the promised land would be their everlasting portion. What was Isaiah doing here? I think we begin to see a paradox and a juxtaposition of two concepts that you'll see later Jesus fulfills in a more perfect way. So in this specific passage, Isaiah is actually prophesying about the destruction of the Assyrians. The Assyrians had come in and conquered most of Israel. The destruction that he pictures is like a forest, nothing but stumps. And out of that destruction, this small tender shoot would emerge, a stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, indicating the line of King David. This tender twig would be the Messiah that delivers his people. Now, jumping all the way back to our story, I have to wonder what the original settlers of Nazareth were thinking when they named their little town Nazareth. Do you suppose that they might have chosen this name as a way of expressing hope that God would once again restore Israel? Although Israel had been cut down multiple times, they were destroyed by the Assyrians, as we read, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and now we find them under Roman rule. Despite these constant subjugation, a small branch from the stump of Israel would grow up. Do you think they chose this name because of this imagery? It was a reminder to themselves, maybe, that God's promise was a hope of salvation. It seems like they were saying, we're never going to lose hope. We're always going to believe. God will save us. And one day God will send a new king to deliver us. So now I'm going to turn now to the second interpretation. So the first interpretation is the play on words between Netzer, a branch, and Nazareth, the place. And the place where the Messiah would grow up. The second interpretation of, of Matthew in this prophecy where he doesn't quote a specific Old Testament prophecy is that he in rather he's referencing the general message of all of the prophets concerning the Messiah. If you look closely you'll notice that Matthew uses the plural prophets which seems to support this understanding rather than a single prophet. He's not referencing an individual or a specific prophecy, but instead speaking to a much bigger idea about who Messiah, who Jesus was, and how it relates to us. So to understand who Jesus was and how he fulfills the prophecy, we're going to dig a little deeper. We're going to dig into what does it mean to be a Nazarene? Well, Nazareth was a small town, probably less than 1,000 people, about 50 to 60 miles north of Jerusalem that was in the region of 
Judah or Judea and Nazareth was north in the region of Galilee. It was the type of community that had a very negative reputation. Most people looked down on it. It was an obscure backwater village that, as I said, had never been mentioned in the Old Testament. We can all think of these types of communities. And at risk of offending someone, I won't give an example. Um, now, many of the Jews who were living in Judea, where Jerusalem was located, they looked down on the entire region of Galilee because there were lots of Gentiles mixed in with the Jewish people, lots of Gentiles living there. Nazareth also specifically was located very close to a major trade route going to Damascus. And historians suggest that there may have been, on a regular basis, shady traders or shady characters and, and travelers passing through there. And then another point, which I think is salient, is that very nearby was a Roman garrison of soldiers. And this was especially despicable because they were the foreign oppressors. And just think about having hundreds of Roman soldiers, young men from foreign lands with nothing to do near your town. And they were the oppressors. You could only imagine the bad behavior that may have been going on in that region. Those living in Nazareth were suspected of compromising with Israel's enemies. Nazareth had a bad reputation and no one wanted to be associated with it. This attitude, I think, is illustrated perfectly in the first chapter of John. In this chapter, Jesus had just started to call his disciples. Philip is all excited because he thinks this Jesus of Nazareth, he's the Messiah. And he runs to tell Nathaniel, right? Nathaniel, um, about Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. And quoting from John 1, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said to him, Really? Can anything good come out of, the Na out of Nazareth? The Messiah. There's no way the Messiah comes from Nazareth. This was the prevalent attitude. It characterizes how people viewed Nazareth of the time. To come from Nazareth or to be a Nazarene was the same as to be despised or to have been born into an inferior society. However, there's, a, a, there's something that the disciples are missing here. They, they knew the Old Testament, but they weren't connecting the prophecies of the Old Testament to Jesus because they were looking for something different. The prophets had foretold already in Isaiah that Messiah would have no form or majesty, that we should look on him, and no beauty 
that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was not the kind of Messiah that people were expecting, even the disciples. So this is the first idea with regard to this interpretation that I think if you keep in mind, will help us understand how Christ fulfills this great message of the prophets. The prophecy that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. The thought is that Jesus of Nazareth simply means Jesus scorned, Jesus despised, Jesus reviled. And that has been true through all of time. Even today, when people hear of Jesus, they're presented with a choice, right? Because Jesus says he is God, he is king. And when people learn of Jesus, there's no neutral ground, although many people try to walk in that neutral space. They either despise him, and we see that all around us, how the world still despises Jesus, or like those of us who love him and all weekly and we stumble our way, we are disciples and followers of him because he is the true Messiah. <clears throat> so the second point now that I'd like you to think about and hopefully understand about this interpretation is that Jesus voluntarily took the title Jesus of Nazareth. He voluntarily identified with this place of shame. In the day of Jesus, a person's name carried a much greater significance than it does in our culture. In the Hebrew culture, a name was generally given at birth to express a bigger idea or an ideal. In some sense, a name could be a prophetic prayer. It might express the hope of the parents. Or it might refer back to one of the promises of God. One Hebrew writer explained the importance of a name this way. The tribes of Israel had good names, each one representing loyalty to God and to Jewish greatness. In the long night of Egyptian exile, it would be the fact that they remembered their names, their ancestors, their traditions, their vision of the future that kept alive their spark of hope for redemption. As long as they remembered their names, they were part of a Jewish people and bound to the eternal covenant of being God's people. In our culture, sometimes parents will name a child after their parents or a grandparent or sometimes a place of significance. But maybe more parents name their kids a name simply because they like the way it sounds. There's no significant meaning associated with the name. Now, in this case of Jesus, God chose his name. And that should tell us something. It carries the significance. Jesus means the Lord is salvation or Yahweh saves. However, we got a little bit of a problem in that Jesus 
was an extremely common name at that time. There was lots of little Jesuses running around. So what do we do in our kind of context when we have lots of children or lots of adults with the same name? We, middle name, okay, thank you. Um, often we give them some kind of other name maybe referencing their middle name. Sometimes, which I think is strange, people use their middle name as their first name, but that's another thing. Um, sorry, Bill. Um, <laughs> um, I lost my thought there. So, uh, <laughs> but often we will give them a nickname or a title or something. So when I was in college, we had several Daves in our group. Davids, right? And before long, one became Big Dave, and one became Little Dave, and then there was Pharmacy Dave. They were all different Daves, right? And so we often associate maybe a physical attribute or maybe an occupation, and we give somebody a nickname like Joe the Plumber or Bob the Builder, right? <laughs> um, but in this case, in the case of Jesus, something much more significant is happening. When he is taken and assigned this name, Jesus of Nazareth, it tells us something. It tells us who he is, where he came from, and what his purpose is. Quoting another Jewish writer, in Jewish history, a name has its own history and its own memory. It connects beings with their origins. To retrace its path is then to embark on an adventure in which the destiny of a single word becomes one with that of a community. It is to undertake a passionate and enriching quest for all those who may live in that name. We're going to find that throughout his entire life, Jesus was associated with Nazareth. He identified with its people and with its shame. Despite his beautiful, powerful, holy nature, he voluntarily took a name that was associated with disrepute and dishonor. And he did that for me and for you. For the purpose, going back to the first prophecy, he did that to the pur for the purpose so that we could know God with us. If we look at his ministry, we'll find that almost every significant event in his life and throughout his ministry, there is an association with Nazareth. Either, either he's called Jesus of Nazareth at the event or someone else calls him Jesus of Nazareth. And I looked these all up. I think there were 17 of them. We've got a list of some of them on the next slide, maybe. Um, okay, keep going. Uh, oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They changed it a little bit on me. So I'm going to go through all 17. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Uh, um, I picked a few that I, I, I want to spend just a couple minutes on each of them to explore what it meant for Jesus to be associated with Nazareth. The first one is that simply that's where he grew up. Quoting from Luke, 
And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee and to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is just about all that the Bible tells us about Jesus' time in Nazareth. We really don't know much about what his life was. But it's likely that he spent about 30 years in Nazareth. We don't know. But if he did, that's five-sixths of his life lived in obscurity. The king of the universe. In a place where nobody wanted to live. With people that nobody liked. It's likely where he made friends. It's likely where he became part of a community. His formative years were there. The ups and downs of adolescence and teenager and young adults, the difficulties, the struggles of normal life, he went through them all right there in Nazareth. And I suspect maybe even a little bit more because his family had a worse reputation. He was born out of wedlock. I wondered if he was bullied at school. I wonder if he was the last kid picked in the schoolyard for the kickball team. That's been me on occasion, <laughs> right? We don't know any of that for sure. You know, we're speculating a little bit here. But what we do know for sure is that he identified with the people of Nazareth and he carried that name for his entire life. The next incident comes right at the start of his ministry. He had called his disciples, and he was teaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. And as he's teaching, there's a man there that says has an evil spirit, or an unclean spirit, I think it's called. Maybe we'll say a demon. And this man calls out to Jesus, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now this is interesting because at the beginning, right at the start of Jesus' ministry, you, you might think that he would have pushed back. I don't want my ministry to start with the title Jesus of Nazareth, especially from a demon. That place has a bad reputation. Nobody's going to listen to me if they know I'm coming from Nazareth. But he didn't push back. He accepted the title, even from this unclean spirit. The next incident comes later in life when he heals the blind beggar Bartimaeus. Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem, and he comes first to the city of Jericho. And Bartimaeus is sitting on the side of the road begging and he hears this commotion, and he says, what's going on? And the people said, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And Bartimaeus' heart swells with hope. And he calls out, Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now this is interesting, and I think we're beginning to see something very significant happening. The people... We're calling Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. But Bartimaeus calls him Jesus, son of David. This is significant because in the Jewish culture, this, the title son of David was a title for the Messiah. 
the new promised king that would deliver the people. How could a Nazarene also be the son of David? How could this be? This was certainly not what the people were looking for or what they expected. We also see Jesus referred to as Jesus of Nazareth during his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Then we find it again at his arrest and betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas kind of betrayed him and told the, the priests where he would be and they brought soldiers. The soldiers were coming probably still at dark. And Jesus knew the soldiers were coming and he gets up from praying and he goes forward voluntarily meeting the soldiers. And it says in John, Jesus came forward and asked them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Again, you might think Jesus, if of any time, might have shied away from this title because he knew they were coming to arrest him and he was going to be beaten and crucified. But yet, he went forward. He volunteered his identity. Next, at the crucifixion, you all know the story that Pilate made a sign and on the sign he ascribed Jesus inscribed Jesus of Nazareth king of the Jews and as Jesus hung on the cross the moment of his greatest suffering separated from God the father for the first time experiencing death separation from God in ultimate agony taking on the sin of all the world both past present and future murdered, crucified between two common criminals. He had nothing to do with those criminals. He had done nothing wrong. And yet there the, sung hung, the sign hung above his head. <clears throat> Later, we see on the road to Emmaus, you know, the disciples, and after he died, the disciples and his followers began to refer to him as Jesus of Nazareth. On the road to Emmaus, we see this. At the uh, moment of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, they refer to him as Jesus of Nazareth. And then sometime later, when the disciples were preaching and they healed a lame man, they were brought before the elders and the rulers and the high priest, and the high priest asked them, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter replies, let it be known. I should have put this scripture on there. I didn't. So this is one. Please listen to this. This is important. Peter responds, let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man, this lame man, is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Never once did Jesus tell people not to use this lowly title. The name that referred to a shameful, ordinary place is the name by which we are saved. Never once did Jesus say no 
I'm the Lord of heaven. I'm the creator of everything, the savior of my people, the king of the universe. No, he didn't. And the reason why is because it was all part of God's plan. God's plan that he would be despised and rejected. So that one day we could experience God's acceptance. It was God's plan that he be humiliated in front of all the world so that you and I one day can be lifted up and honored by God. It was God's plan that he was beaten and wounded so that one day we can be restored and healed completely. He was rejected so that we will experience perfect acceptance. He paid the awful price for our sins, a price that no one else could pay so that you and I can enjoy God's riches. And ultimately, he suffered separation from God, true death, so that someday we can live forever with God himself. I'll call the band up now as we close. <clears throat> There's one more incident that I want to draw your attention to, and that's the story of Saul and Saul's conversion. Saul had been arrested, and he was giving his testimony before those who had arrested him, and he tells a story like this. He, he had been, uh, and Saul, if you recall, his name was later changed to Paul. Paul is what we know as the Apostle Paul. He was giving his testimony and said, I've been a very devout Jew, and I've persecuted the followers of Christ for a long time. In fact, I was traveling to Damascus one day to round up all the Christian men and women there and bring them back to Jerusalem to punish them. And a great light shone out of heaven right I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul answered, who art thou, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. This gives me chills, to be honest. How amazing it is that Jesus who came to this world to take on human form and fulfill this mission with perfection, paid the price for our sins, ascended back into his glory, and now sitting at the right hand of God, he still refers to himself as Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus did this intentionally. He did this voluntarily. He did not seek power, position, or status. Instead, he lived in an obscure place, experienced all the ups and downs of ordinary life. His humanness allows him to identify with us, but also in his mercy, his humanness allows us to identify with him. How great a sacrifice he made. How remarkable to think that God sent his son, part of the Trinity, to come down, take the form of man, to become a human, and he did this permanently. It's wonderful further to think 
that presently he's sitting at the right hand of God. And in the book of Romans, it tells us he's interceding in both fully God and fully human form. He's interceding for you and for I, for me. During his day, it's likely Jesus' enemies referred to him as Jesus of Nazareth because they perceived this was an insult. This was a title that would discredit him. This denied that he was the Messiah. However, his followers used this title in reverent appreciation for God's mercy and salvation conveyed to us through Christ the Messiah. Come down to dwell among us, God with us. So I have a thought this morning as I contemplate this. Am I, are you, are we sometimes like the Jewish leaders of his day? Or are we like Christ's followers? As I consider my own heart this morning, I think of how easily I can be disappointed or discouraged or even frustrated with God from time to time. I believe he's the Messiah, but where is this promised peace? Why do we endure so many difficulties? Is it that my expectations of Christ are different than his own? As we consider this text, we see just because Jesus came on that Christmas morning didn't mean that the struggle and strife were gone. Peace didn't come immediately as the people were expecting it to. Jesus wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. And so it is so often for us in our own experience. When Jesus comes into our heart, he comes as a tender branch, a tender shoot. It brings peace to our souls. But yet the trouble so often remains. His ways don't always bring the results we want or we're looking for. His timing doesn't match our busy schedules. Does this frustrate or anger us? Is he the savior, the type of savior that we're looking for? Tim Keller put it this way. Christmas doesn't mean the end of darkness, but rather a light in the darkness. Each of us still carries with us a residual of our sinful nature. And we live within a fallen world. And God's way of doing things most often is not the way we would prefer. So many of us grow weary and discouraged because we're looking for a Jesus to come and solve our problems, to make our lives better. Jesus wants to come to you and give you hope and peace in your soul despite your circumstances. But often we're looking for an earthly savior and sometimes we miss the Nazarene. Sometimes we're looking or we are happy to accept the Nazarene, the Jesus who empathizes and sympathizes with us. But we're slow to accept him as the son of David, the king, when he asks us to do something hard or there's something in our life that we wish would just go away or he would solve. But he is both. 
He's Jesus of Nazareth, and he's Jesus, son of David. The hope of Christmas story is not that God came for those who are good enough. God came for the sick and poor and the weak, and his salvation is for those who need him, not those who think they are worthy of him. He promises that he is God with us. Today he is still Emmanuel, and today he is still the Messiah. Today he is still Jesus of Nazareth. This means that all the time, in every circumstance, even those times we don't understand, when we cry out, why, Lord? Why, God? In those times, he is with us, walking with us, identifying with us. I'll leave you with a verse from Hebrews in closing. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. And he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Consequently and confidently, he tells us,